This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Salve. Ciao. Buongiorno. Greetings and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm Giancarlo Lombardi from the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Nicoletta Marini-Maio from Dickinson College. Whether you're a colleague and expert in the field of Italian studies. Or just curious about Italian history, culture, politics and language. We are your podcast destination. The aim of the Italian Studies Channel is to provide a broad spectrum of listeners access to exciting new research within the field of Italian studies. Italian studies is a fascinating interdisciplinary field that spans literary studies, cultural studies, cinema and television studies, theater and performance, the history of science, the history of art and music, among many, many other fields. That's right, Nico. Our conversations here are with scholars who have produced recent research across many and varied fields and topics. Ellen, Nicoletta, and I are scholars of modern and contemporary Italian studies, but our mission is to bring you the best of new scholarship in the field, from medieval literature to the most recent cinema and television. And the focus, approaches, and methods of study will differ And what we hope emerges from our conversations is an idea of the richness the field has to offer to many and different listeners. So welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Grazie dell'ascolto. And thanks for listening. Today we have Robin Pickering-Yazzi, the chair of the Department of French, Italian and Comparative Literature at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and professor of Italian and Comparative Literature in that university. Hello, Robin. First of all, let me introduce you to our listener. Um, Robin Pickering-Yazzi is an eclectic and engaged scholar. She has written and edited several significant studies on the mafia. Uh, the mafia in Italian lives and literature, life sentences and their go- geographies, engendering testimonial bodies of evidence in Italian anti-mafia culture, Rita Atria, mafia and outlaw stories in Italian life and literature, and the Italian anti-mafia, new media, and the cultural legality. Recently, also an Italian version of the um, Geografia della Mafia has been published in Italy. Um, At the same time, she has also published articles and books on women writers and figurations of women during fascism, such as Politics of the Visible, Writing Women, Culture and Fascism, Mothers of Invention, Women, Italian Fascism and Culture, and Unspeakable Women, Selective Short Stories Written by Italian Women During Fascism. Today, we are here to discuss Robin, um, Robin's book, Dead Silent, Life Stories of Girls and Women Killed by the Italian Mafias, 1878-2018, by Robin Pickering-Yazzi. Again, welcome to... Um, NBN, Robin, we are really happy uh, that you're here to talk about your wonderful book. Well, I want to thank you, too, for giving me this opportunity to talk with you and also with all of your listeners about this material. So thank you. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start from, uh, you know, the very first question that came to my mind by while reading your book, since the book spans 140 years and shows how the killing of women intersects with the history of the Italian mafias, as well as with the development of the anti-mafia movement. So I learned a lot while reading the book. Can you give us some background on the Italian mafias and anti-mafia movement? I'd love to. 
in part because I think that the Godfather movies have had such an influence on many listeners that they would likely place the beginnings of the mafia in the 20th century, early 20th century. But actually, uh, the four uh, major mafias operating in Italy of these, uh, Cosa Nostra, the Camorra, and the Ndrangheta, all date back to the mid-1800s, and actually the formation of Italy as a nation. Uh, it's interesting to note, too, that the anti-mafia dates back to that time period. In the beginning, you only had a few, a few figures that opposed the mafia. And in fact, the story of Emanuela Sansone, killed in 1896, is a great example because her mother opposed the mafia and reported a mafia counterfeit ring in Palermo to the police. But as a vendetta, the clan killed her daughter. I think then one would think about the 1890s with the Sicilian leagues, and that is the beginning of more of a movement of peasants and socialist activists who oppose the mafia in a very public way. Um, and, but from that point, almost 100 years pass, and it's not until 1982 with the murder of General de la Chiesa and his wife, Emanuela Setti Carraro, uh, that you see the raising of a national anti-mafia consciousness, which then gains full force in 1992 with the massacres of judges Falcone, Morvillo, and Borsellino, along with their bodyguards. I think today, uh, if the mafias uh, of Italy have a global presence and are very active in world economics, legal and illegal, uh, as they may be, and politics, it's also true that there is a global anti-mafia following the Italian example. This is also interesting, Robin. Um, not only the frame or the historical framework that actually you are giving us with your books and especially with this one, but also while talking about the victims, you're actually mentioning, um, I noticed that uh, instead of only Falcone and Borsellino, you also mentioned Morvillo, Francesca Morvillo, yes. as a judge as one of the three judges. And instead, you know, in the memorialization and official memorialization mm -hmm. of the Italian Republic, only two of them are remembered. And she is yes. the wife of, exactly. of Falcone. No? So I, I think this is really interesting. I mean, your perspective uh, is really interesting. Um, but but with this regard, um, I wanted to go to probably the most amazing um, feature of this book, because you said in the introduction in this book, in your words, that that silent breaks the silence to reestablish the very freedoms, and I'm reading from the book, that they were denied to the victims, the freedom to assert the human rights and responsibilities of everyday living in local and global civil communities that are free from criminal intimidation and violence. Now, is the book's online open access form part of this intent to assert freedom and responsibility? So besides his higher diffusion and availability, which other positive effects can the open access form inherently produce? So I'm, I'm sure this is, will be really of, of great interest for the academics among the, the listeners, but also um, is being is surely the case for those who are non-academics among the listeners, the listeners. And overall, I'm really interested in understanding how this editorial venue um, affected the book you wrote. Yeah, it's, it's a complex issue. In part, um, the victims, in a sense, determined the kind of venue that I would choose. I think the most important reason for me for choosing open access was my conviction that the lives of those girls and women who were essentially silenced by oblivion were immeasurably valuable as public knowledge. And so I wanted their stories to freely circulate uh, among as many readers as possible. And in, in relation to this, I later found out from Rosanna Damiani, who was very active in the Casa Memoria Vittime Mafia, the house of memory for the victims of the mafia, um, that it's extremely important for the survivors of the people who have been killed that other people join them to somehow bear the burden. She said, in her words, that these uh, survivors, family and survivors, are like people 
isolated, solitary, in a desert, and they thirst not only for justice, but for that sense of um, having someone to share this burden with, the sense that other people uh, believe the lives of their loved ones are important. And so this uh, really, it was a new perspective for me. I hadn't thought of the survivors as much. And it, um, I don't know, it brought with it a heavy responsibility, I think. I'd also like to say that for my own um, personal ethics, that researching, writing this book in particular was a way to somehow do my part as a global citizen to contribute to civil society and oppose corruption and the mafias and perhaps serve as an example. Obviously, there are also some more practical considerations. Uh, I wanted each victim to have a full page, even if there were only a few bits of information available. That's very difficult with any publisher. Uh, they don't want to waste space. Um, and then uh, for me, that blank space in those entries would also have a meaning, um, a meaning of the life that that person couldn't live out to fill in the page, but also potentially an inspiration for other people to pick up uh, this kind of research and use my project as one of de- a point of departure. I think also in this venue, I could uh, upload photos because uh, I didn't have to worry uh, about shareability of, of uh, some of the public property pieces that I would have had to get copyright for uh, with a press. And the other thing that I really enjoy is that I could include hot links uh, for additional materials. Uh, there are interviews with surviving family members that are absolutely important, uh, the children of some of the women who were killed who talk about the trauma, about how this has forever changed their lives. Uh, You have fiction films, you have nonfiction works that are are published on them. So I could bring in all sorts of ancillary materials to enrich different aspects of their lives if uh, readers wish to pursue their, uh, their study of them. I love this perspective, Robin, because actually it makes me think of the, this um, the opposite of it of, of its of your perspective, mm-hmm. which is the omerta, mm-hmm. the conspiracy of silence. Yes. So, in your yes. affirmation of freedom of organizing the book as you want, opening it up to everyone, and uh, putting their uh, links and uh, connections, and developing mm-hmm. um, further connections with more people and with the survivors, you are affirming. Um, a way of uh, of uh, um, talking about the mafia, which is exactly the opposite that has been, you know, um, going on in Italy and everywhere for mm-hmm. so long, which is again omerta. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really, you know, um, an act of activism, I would say. And uh, yes, it's it's really interesting. So you already started because you you were mentioning how every single victim has a page. But yes. can you provide our listeners with a brief over the overview of the book, explaining in particular how it is organized? I'd love to. Uh, first of all, I, I do start out with a, an introduction that I've kept brief. <laughs> and I've also tried to use uh, a language that will be accessible to everyone and present what are sometimes very complex relations between women, the Italian mafias, and then the Italian state um, from the 1800s to today as a context for readers to think about then the actual life stories and what they might mean um, as evidence to criminal relations between uh, members of the government and the mafias, and most importantly, how the Italian state, by having um Figures who are active in it at the level of police or the military or uh, government at the local, regional, or national levels um, who collude with the mafia, how that then is responsible basically for what has been a massacre of women. And it's a rather strong statement. And uh, it's only by explaining things then in the introduction that I think uh, the lives of these women can tell us more about that and and enable us to put the responsibility where it lies today. I go on to the actual life stories, 
of over 200 uh, girls and women. Some of the, the little girls are under two years old. You also have examples of very elderly women being targeted by the mafia. Yes. Um, and they're presented in chronological order so that readers can have a sense of history as it unfolds. And you can see this all through, also through the visual evidence with the photographs of the victims when they're available. And then uh, so that readers might want to follow up, I do have a brief bibliography afterwards with additional readings. Yeah, and I noticed that actually there are some pictures, but not all of them because right. you couldn't find them, right? Some of yeah. the victims are almost unknown and yes. uh, you had to really dig down to yeah. find information on them. <laughs> yes. And for some of them, you explained, there are only a few lines here. I don't have any anymore. Right. And I was also interested in uh, a, a sort of call to action that you are actually <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> making uh, because uh, you emphasize in many passages of the book that um, uh, there is still no justice for many of the killings, often because of ambiguous interferences or misdirection. And this really struck me that, you know, killings made far away in the past are still unresolved. Yes. So you are inviting readers who may have information on women killed by the mafia to contact you. Exactly. So they have your, your email, your contacts. So what do you expect? Um, has uh, someone already contacted you? And uh, are you scared also? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I'm actually, I'm not scared, even though I must say on, on a Twitter feed that I had created for one of my courses on the mafia, um, I had noted when Carminati was arrested uh, for the mm -hmm. mafia in Rome, uh, Roma Capitale, uh, they had found all of these marvelous artworks in his home. And so I made a rather sarcastic remark about the art connoisseur. And I'll be darned if uh, there wasn't this response from another Carminati uh, to me and, um, you know, criticizing me for, for my comment. And I, so I looked him up and found out it was the brother of the mafioso. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he was also being indicted. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm just not going to respond to this. So, you know, now and then I do get comments from, uh, from different elements uh, in Italy and basically don't don't engage with them. So I'm, I'm not afraid in that sense. Um, but And unfortunately, I haven't been contacted yet by readers. I think that the fact that the book is in English um, does cut down on right. this. And indeed, yeah. with the Centro Documentazione Impastato, uh, so the, the Impastato Center for Documentation of the Anti-Mafia, I'm working now so that they may just go ahead and do a an Italian translation, and it would so that way all the all the materials would be there, but in Italian, and it would also obviously be open access. Um, one thing that did come out of it though was that Rosanna Damiani, again of the House of Memory for Victims of the Mafia, keeps me uh, appraised when there are new new cases. Uh, for example, a week before the book went live, a daughter of Epifania Cocchiara, uh, killed in 1995, uh, her daughter contacted Rosanna and sent her original articles from the newspaper, as well as a beautiful photo of her mother. And Rosanna said, yes, the daughter said it could be included in my book. And so, uh, so that made a big difference. And unfortunately, when a book comes out, in the form mine is, you can't go back and then, you know, and add on some more. So I'm still thinking right. about what I might do in the future with these new cases that come out so that I can add them and potentially go back if there are any errors or something like that, which we haven't found yet. <laughs> so, so you can't no, go back? No, basically? you cannot go back mm -hmm. once it's published uh, mm -hmm. through Digital Commons. It's, it's exactly like a real... Um, hard copy book. Right. Yes, yes. And you mentioned the Impastato yes. Center for Documentation. Impastato is uh, Peppino Impastato, yes. the uh, young man who was killed by the mafia in 1978 yes. um, because of his anti-mafia um, activism, actually. So it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see how you connect to the uh, anti-mafia mm -hmm. movement, to the history of Italy in many different ways. Uh, but let's go back to the, the specific um, coming to life of the book. 
So as I mentioned at the beginning, you have written and edited several significant studies of the mafia already. And at the same time, at the same time, you have also worked extensively on women writers, writers and figurations of women during fascism. So that silent seems to bring together these interests, mm-hmm. but in a new way. And uh, I'm very curious uh, to know more about the intellectual process that led you to conceive this book. Uh, I think that at the very foundation, um, there's a certain thread that runs through my books in the sense that um, I have the position that in order to understand his Italy's history, its society and its culture, we really have to consider women's contributions, their ideas, their actions, works of art, practices in daily life, and put them into dialogic relation to those dominant stories, those dominant histories. Um, This kind of a process then, and looking at dominant movements in relation to movements that have maybe been marginalized, brings about many new perceptions and raises new issues. Uh, As one example, in Dead Silent, I think for the first time, in English, uh, we have a documentation of the lives and very violent deaths of historical girls and women that turns on its head the history of the mafia as men's history, as a history that only concerns male members uh, of the mafia and rarely hits innocent people. It also, um, I think, explodes those myths of the mafia that does not kill women and children or that in the beginnings it was uh, it was a different thing, and uh, it was somehow benevolent or it helped people or something. Because we see that from the very beginning in the 1870s, uh, mafiosi were targeting women for different reasons. So a new panorama exists. I'd also add that even within the context of the books that I had written on the mafia, um, even for me it was striking that I had written in so many different ways about uh, mafia violence that concerned literature or it concerned film and certain female figures would reappear. You could probably count them on one hand uh, because they were very famous. And at a certain point I thought, well, I wonder how many there really are. How, how far back do they date? Because most of the famous cases were recent cases. We think of Rita Atria in 1992, um, and we think uh, potentially of Lea Garofalo, in part because of the famous film, yes. because of the books that tell her story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, how many were there? And so when I started gathering information, I was first very shocked that uh, just the strategy of using violence as a daily tool and targeting women went back to the very origins of the three mafias and then the numbers of women. Because if I have over 200 victims, um, which is not all, this list, as I point out in the introduction, the, the history is open in its beginnings and it's open in its endings, endings in part because the mafia continues to target women but also because the mafia's use of lupara bianca, the practice of killing and then uh, dissolving the body in acid, making it disappear so there's no trace of the victim, and then also their expertise at staging killings so that they look like maybe it was just a robbery or a drug bust gone bad, um, creates immense uh, obstacles to somehow constructing a... uh, a history of uh, that would include all of the victims. And so we really need archival research uh, to go back. But um, so, you know, it, it showed me the importance then uh, of doing this research that would focus specifically on violence. Yes, there are many elements that actually uh, strike me when you are talking about the the intellectual process. You're talking about historical research. You're talking about giving voice to these women who disappeared and and to to change the the face of the official history of the mafia because it's also Mm -hmm. only made by by men. Um, Yes. And they are talking about the archive. you're, You're actually 
by unburying this 200 girls, more than 200 girls and women killed by the mafia, uh, you're providing a lot of background, the circumstances of their deaths, and uh, um, the often unsatisfactorily mm -hmm. legally legal conclusions of their stories. If sometimes exactly. they're not even conclusions at all. So, um, so you are creating an impressive archive, and this makes me think of many different. Um, <laughs> makes my brain go in many different directions. Uh, but first of all, I have a question about this. Um, so the, the the women of whom you narrated the history, you actually recuperated your you um unburied the histories had very different lives, very different stories. And uh, for instance, some played a role within the clan. Yes. And this is disturbing, but they were um, you know, aware of everything. Others were simply mafiosi's daughters or wives. Many had no relationship with the mafia and were killed yes. accidentally. <laughs> that was also very scary. Um, yeah. Others were kidnapped for a ransom. Um, and finally, there are some of them who were uh, well-known anti-mafia judges or journalists. So I would be really interested in understanding um, how these individual stories are related as a whole to the collective issue of the mafia in their communities. Uh, you're absolutely right with regard to the, the diversity. It's incredible. And each morning as I'd start research on a, on, on a new individual, I was always so excited to think, you know, well, what am I going to discover about this person? Um, and every day it was something new. Um, I think that it is precisely this diversity that shows how every person uh, who lives or passes through a territory where there is a mafia presence is victimized in some way and a potential murder victim. So many, as you note, were killed doing very common things, picking out the garbage, chatting with relatives or friends, picking their children up for, from school. Um, and so with these different mafia clans, part of their attitude is that they own the space and that uh, they can do whatever they want to. And I think if we remember that today, for instance, the Italian mafia territories, in addition to being global, if we look only at Italy, those territories reach from Lombardy and Piedmont in the north, through the capital of Rome, down into Basilicata, Puglia, Campania, Sicily. And in those territories, then, a system of behavior uh, is imposed. Um, I, I recently read the story, um, it was in an article that was on the trauma of living in a mafia territory. And a young woman was um, uh, confessing that when she would just even go into the cafe in the morning to get a cappuccino, that she was faced with a quandary because in that cafe, there were often the mafia boss in the town as well as a police officer. She never knew, you know, to whom should I say good morning? Do I need to say that to the mafia mm -hmm. boss because he's sitting there and expects me to show this sign of respect or to the, the police officer because this was an honest citizen? And so what, what ties these, uh, these young girls and these women together is that they had the very misfortune um, of living in a territory where there was a mafia presence and the Italian state, I would say I would draw this out too, uh, their lives, a unifying thread is that they each show that the Italian state in its local, regional, and national levels does not make the choice um, to uh, defend its citizens, to give its citizens safety in public spaces. And I say doesn't make the choice because of the fact that it allows Collusion to go on. Yeah, the more I listen to you, the more I have uh, getting shivers. Actually, it, it's I'm incredible. Sorry. It is depressing. <laughs> no, no, I, it's not only depressing. I wouldn't use that word. It's impressive because we have um, now, you know, many images in mind. The legend of the mafia and is becoming more yes. and more spectacular through TV mm -hmm. and movies. Since the Godfather, as you 
brilliantly said. We, sure. we had a certain narrative, narrative, narrativization and, uh, you know, I would say mythopoiesis of the mafia, which has been made yes. in a certain way just to make us, um, interested. But, but it's so, um, there are so many ramifications everywhere in, uh, right. in every, in the everyday life and, uh, in, in new rights are, as a yeah. citizen, it's, a it's incredible. And uh, actually, in uh, in the introduction, I think in your book, you're talking mm-hmm. about the uh, women killed by the mafia as bodies of evidence, and you connect them yes. with uh, the history of the Italian nation. So I I wanted to hear more about um, th- this correlation is for specific cases. For instance, um, you you. Uh, discuss a lot about Portella della Ginestra and then the Trattativa yes. fra Stato e Mafia, the pact between the state and the mafia. Uh, more recently, instead, the Portella della Ginestra massacre is in 1947. So um, which kind of correlation are the bodies of the females' bodies of evidence with mm-hmm. the history of the Italian nation in this sense? Right. I think um, I'm dealing with this pact between the state and the mafia in two ways, in the sense that in the very beginnings with the formation of the Italian nation, uh, you have a pact, but it is not official, a pact in the sense that already by the 1870s, you do have the state in the business of buying votes votes, uh, from the mafias uh, and giving in return protection uh, for mafiosi from prosecution. You also have the state giving the mafia uh, access to public contracts. Um, Today, we might also think of the European Union uh, funds. Uh, Mafias are making billions off of that. With uh, Portella della Ginestra, as you say, in 1947, um, there we have a great example of how the women killed tell different chapters in the story of Italy's domestic as well as international politics, because also implicated are the United States and Britain in that, uh, with along with the Italian members of parliament uh, working in collusion with the mafias in Sicily. I, uh, I, I'll give other examples, but that one strikes me in particular um, in part because that was a family event. Uh, the massacre at Portella della Ginestra was on May Day, so the 1st of May, where you had over 2,000 people uh, made up of families primarily, <clears throat> grandparents, uh, mothers and fathers, little kids, who right. basically went for an outdoor picnic. They went to have fun outside, enjoy companionship, hear some speakers, have music and everything. And then uh, very early on in the event, machine gun fire was opened up on them. And it was the bandit Giuliano with his gang working, however, on specific orders uh, of the local mafia and with orders, it would seem, from the minister of the interior. So a member of parliament, uh, over 30 people were wounded, killing 11, among whom you had Vincenza Lafata, who was only eight, Margherita Clesheri, uh, who was the mother of six children. Several people died also later, um, you know, as many as five years later from the wounds that they had. So uh, similarly, <clears throat> excuse me, we might look at the train massacres of 1970, 1984, 2002. Um, you had passengers that were either commuters or people who were going to visit families and they were riding on the train. And then all of a sudden, uh, a huge explosion. And in these massacres, if you add up the tally, you have some hundred people killed, among whom were many women. Uh, This kind of event shows not only that collusion between Italian politicians who try to use different mafia clans, sometimes it's Cosa Nostra, sometimes it's Nendrangheta or the Camorra, in order to cast attention onto, uh, at times, leftist parties or more conservative parties. And it is the victims uh, who pay for this with their lives, essentially. Um, 
I would also say that um, thinking about this uh, with the official uh, pact between the state and the mafia, which takes place in, in the early 1990s. And these are official negotiations between um, members of parliament, ex-generals, uh, law enforcement, and mafiosi, so that the mafia would stop its spectacular massacres of public officials. And in return, the parliament would pass laws that would go more easily on the mafia and stop solitary confinement with no chance of parole with 41 beasts. And during this same period where elements within the state are negotiating with the mafia, you have the 1992 massacres of Capaci and then Via D'Amelio, which I referenced before, before with judges Falcone, Morvillo, and Borsellino and their bodyguards. But I think most particularly about the Nincioni family asleep in their home in Florence in 1993 when the bomb is set off by uh, Cosa Nostra clans and the, the whole building explodes. And you have uh, a mother and her two children, her two daughters, one is only a few months old, who are killed in that. And also a, a student was killed. So you had other victims as well. Um, this this is something that is so abhorrent and uh, and you know blood curdling that the state would be involved in negotiations and with this kind of a group. I mean, you know. Yes, no, it's it's impressive and actually is is not a new right. thing. Um, it's still going yes. on. And uh, actually, there are two things I wanted to discuss. You mentioned the forty one yes. bis, which is today mm-hmm. just today is under scrutiny um, by the European exactly. Union. Um, so the, there is a lot of talking in um, in the press, and there is a lot of discussion about it. Probably the European Union doesn't understand what's going Precisely. on. Doesn't understand which kind of impact, mm-hmm. which kind of impact uh, could the cancellation of the forty one bis um, have on the on on the mafia and on the the life of the Italian people. And on um, well, j- just can you explain a little bit about the forty one bis and what it is and what what's at stake? With the 41 yes, and 41 Bis um, was both a very appropriate punishment. Uh, it was applied, for example, to Salvatore Rina, who was responsible for over 100 homicides, including women uh, in that. And also, for example, the super boss Provenzano, who was under 41 Bis. And it is, uh, again, it's solitary confinement with no chance for parole. But it is also used as an incentive to, um, uh, to enable mafiosi who will turn state's evidence and give um, uh, uh, authentic and truthful evidence against the mafia so that the judges can follow up and find mafia links, learn about different mafia crimes. Uh, it's an incentive for them because then uh, they can have certain privileges and a chance uh, for parole in the end. And indeed, we've had uh, several of the, uh, of the major mafiosi who have become uh, witnesses for the state and, uh, and given very fruitful information. So uh, the European Union, I think, in stating that, to apply 41 bis to mafiosi so that they have no chance of parole unless they turn state's evidence that that is cruel and inhuman and it uh, goes against human rights shows their short-sightedness and, as you say, their inability to understand uh, not only uh, the implications for law enforcement, but for Italian citizens and everyone traveling through Italy. Um, it it is most important that that option is held up, I think, for the Italian government and for the Italian people. And speaking about today's news, it just came out uh, in this morning's Italian news that in relation to the uh, to the massacre at Capaci, in which uh, Judge Morbillo was killed, that an ex police officer 
was also involved. So that's now coming out, which goes back to, I think, your point about how members of the state or others sabotage investigations, lead them off track so that whether it's Portella yes. de la Ginestra in 1947 or Capaci or the murder of Borsellino later on because he would not accept participating in the, in the state mafia pact um, uh, and cases that have come up to today that, um, you know, uh, we have to do something to militate so that we do not have state secrets and so that there will be serious investigations into these murders. Yes. And going back to what you were discussing before about the history um, mm-hmm. of certain massacres and their relationship with the women, um, you were mentioning the, the explosion uh, yes. that actually killed uh, the whole family in Florence. And uh, I mean, this is really... Mm, you know, an amazing fact. You were talking about territoriality, the territoriality of the mafia. So an episode mm-hmm. like that shows that the, the, the mafia goes even beyond uh, the actual physical territorial um, power that it has always had in, in certain Italian and no, no, yes. not only Italian areas, but it's, it's, it goes much more yes. beyond No, that. absolutely, because it will kill anywhere. Um, uh, you have killings also mm-hmm. in London that are performed by Cosa Nostra so that um, this has worldwide effects, not only throughout any territory, you know, within the Italian nation, but also globally. It's interesting. Um, I'm currently teaching a course that is on uh, the four major Italian mafias in the global frame of organized crime and Canada. You know, just over our border, border has a tremendous problem with Nandrangheta, which last year had done pop, public homicides. So, um, yes, the Nandrangheta is becoming yes. more and more powerful all over the world. This is a phenomenon in the recent years. It's really interesting too. Um, Going back to the book, which is uh, <laughs> so rich that, you know, it's so inspiring. I'm still thinking of uh, those women and girls are uh, presented yes. as, as a catalog in the book. That was really striking to me because um, it made me think mm-hmm. of the famous uh, book yes. by, Albert, by Umberto Eco talking about the lists, the importance of the lists mm-hmm. and uh, how they... Um, they relate to an experience with a defi- mm-hmm. deficiency of language because lists yes. help us to impose an order mm-hmm. when we gaze down into the abyss or up to the infinity. This is what he said. So I was wondering if, uh, you know, this lack of memorization of, of the female victims um, led you um, to, to, to think about the catalog because it was, it was sort mm-hmm. of a deficiency of language for you, right? And and so I wanted you to talk a little bit about the principles that guided your choice of, of creating a catalog beyond mm-hmm. the archive. Um, I think that, um, you know, when you talk about looking into the abyss and deficiency of language, it is interesting because um, this lack of memorization and memorialization really does exemplify yes. that notion of a deficiency of language uh, and to confront such such pain, such traumatic loss and a traumatic loss that does not have an ending uh, to it. I'd also mentioned the horror of looking systematically and encountering case after case where this pain, violence and traumatic loss is rationalized by the mafia. In other words, it follows their entirely rational system of using violence um, to uh, reach their aims. And that in itself, uh, to me, um, then is a source of horror. But basically, the catalog was quite best suited to my goals. And so um, through this kind of a form... I could reconstruct a very clear history that would be accessible, easily searchable for general readers, for scholars. Um, I had thought about other ways of organizing the book, 
such as by region. But uh, if I had done that, um, I would have been then giving the power to the mafias in the sense that the mafias, as you say, are territorial and therefore uh, they operate in certain regions. And it seemed then that I was giving the mafia power. Instead, by beginning with the women um, as my primary focus and their stories as the beginning, as the end, um, that the catalog had an advantage uh, in a sense to uh, these women through their bodies, through the evidence, then narrate different developments in history. And most important, um, this form by beginning, you know, the form of the catalog, it makes things easily digestible. And if you begin in the 1800s, it may shock readers and again, explode those very myths that we entertain about the mafia, uh, that they don't kill women, um, that they that they helped people in the beginning. And so <clears throat> um, ultimately, the catalog seemed to be the best, uh, the best kind of a form for this project. Yes. And uh, I, I really appreciated your reference to the horror because... Um, since you're looking at the victim in such a, a very, uh, you know, lucid way, historical way, you're looking, you know, into the abyss, as you said, um, in a sort of, in a, in a framework yes. that actually is the same as Adriana Cavarero's horrorism. You know, the, there's the way of looking at violence yes. on people who are not able to react. The, the, it's, it's the, the worst horror ever um especially on women and children mm-hmm. and on women who who are not who were not even related to the mafia most yes. of the cases um so um basically right. you are creating a space for them in history this is what you are saying in the book so your your initiative your book actually this is what mm-hmm. you're doing and uh, um in relationship also to the, the last thing you were talking about, so to Adriana Cabrera's horrorism framework, um, do you think that in, in, in trying to alter how women killed by the mafia have been not memorialized or even canceled by official history, you created a feminist counter archive of yes. the past? <laughs> I know. I think, I, this is a difficult question. <laughs> it's very complex. Um, because a feminist counter archive, it has advantages and, and it, and it runs risks too, in that sense. I, I do agree. The project is definitely driven by a feminist critical scope. And that is to recuperate that historical information and, uh, place value upon each of those lives, uh, the lives that had a value intrinsically that were each unrepeatable. They, uh, you know, just incommensurable. And um, each girl and woman was in the process of living with hopes, with fears, um, dreams, and brutally cut cut short. Now, that's the first archive of its kind in contrast to other public archives. Um, it has this focus then on female social and historical figures. As with most, I think, counter-archives, it may run that risk of being taken then as as somehow separate, as easily cast aside. So I, um, it's a counter-archive, but ideally, I would hope that the archive is situated, um, as I speak in it, <laughs> in a dialogic relation to similar, similar public archives and then can lay the ground for a fuller um, history of Italy that takes into account also the mafia uh, with those relations that it has. Because again, uh, the mafia is not a separate history. It's not a separate criminal history. It is the history of Italy. And these women, as part of the history of Italy and part, you know, uh, implicitly of the history of the mafias than our full-fledged subjects of history. So um, I, I hope that as uh, in its function as a feminist archive, that it, it uh, also plays this role. Yes, this is so interesting, Robin, because actually 
I was thinking um, again of the of the topic, um, women of any age of uh, um, you know often very vulnerable, um, like you know yes. the horror horrorism that Adriana Cavalera is talking about. Um, but you yes. are saying that you don't want to create a vulnerable archive, that you don't want to create a vulnerable piece of reading for people who uh, are kind of removed from the official history. You want to be uh, a powerful force in this recreating the history of the mafia. Am I correct? Absolutely. This is really yeah, in two ways, yeah. including women and and making this history um, uh, an integral part of uh, our dominant narratives of Italy in the past and in the present, because this this issue impacts all of Italy. And as I say, not just Italy alone, in the sense that we travel to Italy. It's uh, among the most popular tourist destinations. People go there, they interact. Um, and uh, I really do want to see a raising of consciousness so that people are critically aware of this social and economic and most importantly, political problem. Because if we can draw attention to it in Italy, then this notion also of political corruption, which plagues other first world nations, uh, among others, um, perhaps we can also learn something and, uh, and militate against that here as well. Yes. So you're transferring the concept of vulnerability from the women to the mafia. You want that to be vulnerable to um, yes. our reflection on it. And this Absolutely. is, this is you brilliant. So beautifully. And this is brilliant. I love it. Uh, <laughs> so this is why your book actually communicates, um, you know, this, this kind of strong, um, conviction, strong, uh, passion in a, in an invest, it's an investment, it's an intellectual investment on something which is really yes. important. And I, I really appreciate that. And I, I'm sure that our, uh, listeners, uh, are also curious to read the book now much more than before. <laughs> Again, the book is Dead Silent, Life Stories of Girls and Women Killed by the Italian Mafias, 1878-2018 by Robin Pickering-Yazzi. Uh, you can find the book open access, completely free online. Now, thank you, Robin, for this wonderful uh, interview, for this wonderful podcast, and for the time that you um, uh, gave us for for this reflection. Well, I want to thank you because I also think that your questions and your observations brought new perspectives on this book. So thank you. Thank you, Robin. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Me Goodbye. Bye-bye. So thanks a lot for listening to this installment of the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Please come back to check out our other podcasts on topics like art history, Italian cinema, medieval literature, television studies. And even more than that, history of thought, contemporary women's writing, gender studies, ecology, As well as politics and religion in Italy, opera, queer theory, Jewish studies, Dante, Machiavelli, you get the idea. We are your Italian studies hosts. Giancarlo Lombardi. Nicoletta Marini-Maio. And Ellen Nirenberg. All comments and questions can be addressed to itst at gmail.com. E grazie dell'ascolto. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next time.